You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When I was like 17 years old, I just became a studio rat. So by the time I was like 25, I that's almost all I did. And, and, and year, uh, you know, the next couple of years after that, when I was doing things, um, you know, with Howard Benson, like the first record he ever gave me to work on sold six million records. You know what I mean? Like, it, this is kind of like, oh, OK, I'll, I'll do this now. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Siobhan Cronin here, as always, with my friends, Benny Goodman and Corey Peza. And we are once again, another episode of 2020. If you haven't listened or subscribed or watched on the YouTube channel, please go to 2020-d.com. We have over 100 episodes now. So, yay, we made it. (sighs) And very excited to dive right into part one of this episode with our dear friend, Jim Foster, who has done the Neurotic Guitarist with Ben. He's creative director of Red 13 Studios, has done a bunch of amazing he makes projects. he makes amazing meatballs for the the motley crew staff he, <laughs> he's he's been in bands that you know ended up i don't know, just getting signed by the beastie boys you know nuno betancourt the goat been around his fucking yeah. band he's been around and, he's got some uh, great stories yeah He's a, he yeah, he used to paint houses. A bunch of legendary people, and it, everything sounded so easy to him. So it was just incredible to like hear. Very, very down to earth guy, but uh, amazing stories with a bunch yeah. of experiences in Zen. the video world. So anyway, let's not waste anyone's time. Let's dive right in. Part one with Jim Foster right now. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Benny Goodman. Welcome to another episode of 2020. I'm here with a good friend of mine, actually. But like, it's not just that he's a friend of mine. He he's a he's a Renaissance man because this man has played in a band called Gangsta Bitch Barbie that was, I believe, sued by Mattel and then changed their name to a band called Null Set and then was signed by the fucking Beastie Boys. And I believe my hero, my love of my life, Nuno Betancourt uh, produced your first demo and then something about uh, Tommy Lee thinks you make great meatballs, you produce videos for Daughtry and then I think don't you mow Sully Erna's lawn? Ladies and gentlemen, Jim Foster for Red 13! The man, the myth, the fucking legend! Wow, that was epic, Ben. That was fucking epic. That was? Uh, No, I don't mow Sully's lawn and I didn't produce a Daughtry video, I directed it. Oh, I'm sorry. No, okay. it's cool. Can can you describe <laughs> yeah. the difference between producing and directing for those those lay people out there? Producers work Gen pretty pop. hard. They producers <laughs> work really hard, but they don't really get out of their seats. Yeah. And, and then a director will work probably just as hard, if not harder. But there's a lot of walking. Your health right. your health app on your iPhone goes through the roof those days. Because <laughs> I always think of the director chair, so I would always think the director's the one sitting in the seat. But apparently, it's the opposite. Bullshit. Yeah, you never get to sit in a seat. Never. <laughs> 
Well, cool. Well, welcome to our podcast. And thanks. I've I've obviously heard a lot about you from Ben and Neurotic Guitarists and all the video projects we've been. Oh, that's a thing he does, by the way. He's he's also the guy behind the Neurotic Guitarists, which we shamefully don't talk about on the show because I mean, look, I'm obnoxious enough. So like if that's not enough, you go to the neuroticguitarist.com and Jim has somehow made this palpable with guitars. And he's done it in a brilliant way because I'm not brilliant, but editing is a thing. <laughs> Jim, how about, haven't you quit Neurotic Guitarist yet? Has Ben not pissed you off to the point of wanting to just completely retire? I'm above that right now in my life. So lucky for Ben. Yeah, no, we're good. We're good. I've, I've gone through my Zen training long before this. Otherwise, there would be none of this shit. Yeah. I, I, do, you, do you offer lessons in that by any chance? I could. No, it's just a life path. You got to walk and that's just the tough shit of life, you know? <laughs> well, speaking of a life path, can you walk us through yours a little bit? Get, kind of give us a background on how you got into um, video directing and what you do. Tell us a little bit about it. Um, for the most part, I was making a lot of records like I kind of stopped about a decade ago and, and all of the bands that I was working with all needed videos. And a lot of the videos were just I don't they just sucked. So, you know, just like anyone, we started making videos for the bands. And of course, they sucked, too. But after like a couple hundred, things started progressing because we kind of came from a label background and did a bunch of label videos. But in between you know, for every label video, there's 15 or 20 unsigned artist video. And that kind of stuff is just a lot of work. So, you know, I just kind of gravitated towards doing less audio because I was uninspired and just wanted to jump out of it. And that was so natural and easy for me. I mean, it was, it was really easy. Did that you was, have a background in video prior to that? The, the move? No, but you know what it was? I know from being on stage or being in a band and shot, I know how bands want to look. Yeah. Or I, I know where that camera's got to be and what part you don't want to show of them because there's <laughs> just natural stuff that pisses them off. So I was, you know, I'm always like, hey, that's no good. Hey, that's no good. Hey, do that. So I was like, oh, all right. I'll run my mouth in front of videos now instead of microphones, you know? <laughs> you started as a musician. Can, can you talk about some of your experience playing in a band, how you got into music? Um, you know, we my band was kind of, like hacky, pleasantly hacky, shitty, kind of heavy, but noisy. And uh, the real thing was um, a, a, an a and arc from Capitol came to Newberry Comics back in the day. and was like, who's selling the most records? Who's unsigned? And they were, they were pushing us so heavily. We were selling a lot of records. And so this guy came to a show we had and, uh, you know, eventually through two more labels ended up signing with the BC boys on grand Royal. And that guy ended up being our A&R guy through this whole ordeal, you could say, you know, but it was, it was pretty cool because um, I ended up making a record with Howard Benson who had me work on some records like POD satellite and a bunch of other great records with inch, which ended up opening my studios on the East coast. So all of that that went on was definitely for a reason. And it was, it was cool. It was like, it was just like a journey, but I don't even really think about that stuff much. Now it was so long ago, you know, do you miss playing music or are you is just really into video? I would like to play music only at a high level. I can't goof around. I can't listen to drummers, tunes, snare drums and guitar players. Fuck off. I can't <laughs> deal with that shit anymore. You know, I don't blame you. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Siobhan, you just get used to the, the tuning of the orchestra sound, right? Like, it, oh, took, yeah. it took me forever to, to know what that was because that's like the stereotypical thing in every movie and TV show is the orchestra tuning. Yeah. And uh, it's it's much more pleasant than a, than yeah. a, lo a local band tuning. <laughs> that's beautiful <laughs> yeah. compared to it, you know? <laughs> tuning to those lovely, what are they? Are they fifths or fourths? What are the, yeah, it's like, fifth. it sounds so nice. Yeah, no, changing into the band world. Yeah, I had to learn a lot of things and get used to a lot of shit, as I'm sure we all did. <laughs> but yeah, there's, do you want to know? Do you want to know a crazy thing about Jim? Was that he when he was in the band Null Set? It was one of my biggest shows with my band Carve. We got signed, and it was their it was their going away show. It was their last show, and this was their last show. Like like Kiss, like Jim Foster is is Gene Simmons. He like his last show, like fucking twenty three years ago. Uh, but I remember that they were like the biggest fucking deal. And I, I, I knew he had made it because he had his like his his fucking beat up Marshall cabs and like, you know, in road cases that had his name, like his band's name on the side of it. And they had like actual roadies like moving shit around. And like when they went on stage, there was just an aura about it. And I remember like I was like 19. This chick came up to me and she was like, this is my favorite band and I'm so upset because this is their last show but I love you guys so maybe I'll just have to follow you so like it was back then also at a time when people actually cared about music and it's like if you had nothing to do and like Null Set was the band that you saw and the band that opened for them at the the going away show they'll be like oh well we'll just follow you it was such a different time but I, Jim was like the man he was the coolest dude on campus playing his shitty classic Gibson guitar that's Benny you were Jared's there place. You were I there? was at, at Jared's place, dude. Yeah. Jared's uh, place guy. All right. He likes to say that. I have no idea. <laughs> so what, Ben, what was the story yeah. of you and Jim meeting? I'm curious about that. How did you make that? I don't connection? know. Well, the funny part is, is that like, so I dated a girl when I was younger who was just obsessed with Null Set. Like literally they had like, I, Jim could attest to this. There was like a hundred people that went to every show every single like that was their life and one of my ex-girlfriends was obsessed so like and she was too scared to talk to him like you could go and talk to them she's like i hope they don't know who i am so like i didn't talk to jim for a long time even though i had seen him at a bunch of shows because we weren't supposed to like make eye contact with jim <laughs> i'm not really sure when <laughs> i i don't know if it was like prospect hill or something like that like which is a mutual friend he's directed i believe some of their videos and like adam the same like they're a really awesome band from uh you know the new england area uh, i think at their shows may have been the first time but i don't know jim how did we actually meet Fucking no clue, Benny. I'm not even. <laughs> I'm not even trying to joke. I don't even remember the cannabis, the can of cup. Were we really high, like judging weed or something? And I was like, oh, I think I know. You're in that band, Gangsta Mattel, right? I I really don't remember. All you always just creeping around. Anyone will say that. Oh yeah, I know, Benny. Well, anyway, you're so you're. In other words, you're a Boston native. You've been around the scene. Ran into Ben at some point. Totally. Yes. Completely. <laughs> yeah. I never had the pleasure of making a record with Benny, though. Really, not back in the day. I don't know. I just don't remember where where. I don't know that. But now we have a bunch of unreleased songs, and I judge people by the songs they don't release. And we got some <laughs> fucking awesome unreleased songs. Like I'm trying to go for like Prince Van Halen territory, and like we we have songs with David Abrazis from Pearl Jam, all kinds of fucking insane. Like Jim could speak to it. Like great, great musicians, great players, and I have zero plans of ever releasing any of it. Like you guys can all fuck yourselves. It's for me. Fair. Oh, can I ask something real quick? Of course. Did the Queen's Gambit win an Emmy last night? 
It did. It did. So I was actually surprised that the lead actress didn't win the Emmy. I think it was uh, Kate Winslet that won that uh, category. But yeah, for I think directing it won. And then the composer who did the music won the Emmy, which was amazing. Well, yeah, it's oh. the best music ever. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what that, does that mean for you? It means that I was on a film that won an Emmy. I don't get an actual <laughs> Emmy. I didn't get to go to the awards, but I did. I mean, I worked closely with the composer and he won the Emmy for comedy. Yeah, but you could say you were on the Emmy award winning. Yeah, sure, sure. Oh, of yeah, course. that's yeah. badass. We're no, putting I mean, that that's the new 2020 tagline. Yeah, featuring. Emmy award uh, <laughs> featuring Emmy award winning. Yeah, yeah it's, it's so funny how the stuff that takes the least amount of my time gets the most glory. And then the stuff I slave over for years, people like 10 people listen to it. So always. <laughs> yeah, that's always. just how it is, I guess. Yeah. But super cool yeah you know it's, it's very cool to i guess rub against people it's like being a popular podcast host yeah exactly <laughs> you know instead of being like an unbelievable virtuoso like violinist doing all the all, all the things that you do or being in just a rock band or a writer or using your masters in anything you're 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 just gonna make it like being on spotify having people listen to you against my obnoxious voice and just being like ah. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, what? <laughs> I I don't know. There will be many uh, off-topic rants in this in this podcast. Sure. Well, anyways, congratulations. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, that <laughs> was great. Cool. It's yeah, it, it was cool just to observe. I mean, I you know I played music that was written already, but it was very cool to observe. You know how composers think about writing pieces. You know, based on images, because that that to me has always been astounding. Like you see something that has absolutely nothing behind it, and you have so much power to drive the emotion you know by whatever you write you just you can completely change the the tone in the scene you know with whatever music goes underneath so it's it was definitely cool to watch that process be a part yeah. of it it's a huge part of why it was good i'm sure and it was oh, yeah. really good yeah no it was it was cool to see it because i you know i hadn't seen the full uh series i just saw kind of little clips where i did the um you know, the, the violin stem. So I didn't really know what the story was. And then I was kind of the last person to watch it. People were like, oh, are you watching The Queen's Gambit? It's number one on Netflix right now. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I haven't seen it yet. And so I finally watched it. I'm like, well, that was actually a really cool show. Meanwhile, so Benny's going 18, 20 hours a day, fucking fighting for his life for every scrap of fame and every... <laughs> step he could take on the ladder Siobhan's like I don't know fuck it <laughs> perfect yeah it, it's true like I literally remember saying like hey Siobhan like you know you're number one she's like what do you mean and I'm like the queen's gambit she's like number one on what like in the world for everything <laughs> she's like what do you mean I'm like it's gonna be like probably the biggest show of the what do you mean like okay just watch it yeah it really was and I'll be like I watched I watched the whole thing and I was like this is amazing and she's like I got through like an episode. I'm like, are you serious? Are you fucking serious? <laughs> Meanwhile, the music, if I hadn't known that Siobhan played on it, regardless, I would have been like, this is, the music is incredible. And it is so intricate and integral to the to the uh, way that this thing unravels and also to the complexities of chess. So like this music is actually complex. And after listening to Siobhan, apparently complex diametrically to what the game is doing, which makes sense because that show is like Inception. So fuck my brain, right? <laughs> like, but it's amazing sounding. Siobhan's just like, oh yeah, that's casually amazing. And that's me. I forgot about it. <laughs> Well, what was cool was that they, they did give credit to the musicians. It was cool to be in the credits, you know, because a lot of times they don't. They'll give credit to the composer, you know, directors, of course. But they that don't was my name. Oh, my yeah. God. That's so cool. Yeah. They'll shrink anyway. it to the side and speed it up 12 times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It was, it was a quick uh, moment of fame. But anyway, very cool to be a part of it. Yeah, well, let's good. get back to you, Jim. Okay. <laughs> 
Ben, I'm surprised you don't have more questions as the most well, knowledgeable. I, I definitely want to just hop in because you mentioned, um, you know, you don't think much about, you know, the the music, like, uh, you know, original music side of your career in the past too much. But I think it's, you know, from what I know, and I, I know there were, you, you produced a documentary on, on Null Set, correct? Like, I, I, you guys have a fascinating story. Can you at least give us like the Cliff Notes version of that of that kind of trajectory that you were on? Yeah. When did Nuno discover you? <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, Nuno's nephew is a drummer in the band. So that helps. That helps a lot. Yeah. I mean, and and <laughs> and at that time I was recording um, Nuno's brothers and Gary's brother's band. So there was a little bit of that like shit going on. But Nuno, for a minute, decided he liked us and he very quickly decided, fuck us. I mean, it was <laughs> but that, I mean, that's a footnote. It was a demo anyways. And um, so the the cliff note is um, we jumped from three labels in the span of like a year and a half trying to get this record done. And finally, at the end, when we had like a heavy hitter like Howard Benson helping us, things were very intense and it took a lot of pushing to get things moving. I mean, if this record came out two out uh, two years earlier, like it should have, things would be different, but whatever. So with 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 Howard pushing that, uh, you know, things got so serious that the ball started getting dropped everywhere because now people who didn't want to be accountable, you know, label types and whatnot management just couldn't handle simple tasks. And so balls started dropping everywhere. And it, and it just so happened to be that it, the album came out like uh, a couple of weeks or whatever before um, 9-11 and the Beastie Boys office was right downtown in Manhattan. So, I mean, that was just, that was it. They just folded the label over. So that that was really the end of all that. And we just we were going to sign to like, honestly, some weird shit like Rough Riders or some crazy hip hop labels for a metal band. But it just turned out that our singer was like, you know what? I mean, he the whole time our singer was running like this giant computer corporation so he's always he always said hey if it's not fun for me i'm leaving yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he did and he and he fucking did and so i always like hey he always said he was gonna do it so you can't get mad at him so that just kind of went away and but out of the ashes of that was my studio and you know it instantly was just constantly 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 booked like you know a doctor's office or whatever to the point where it just started growing and you know once I had partners come in, these rooms started one room, two, four, three, you know, it's just five, six, seven, eight, nine rooms. So now we have, you know, nine pretty decent studios inside of two facilities and, you know, our production company and everything does it. That's all kind of running itself. And then we have our creative agency that does these videos for, you know, major bands or, or, you know, commercials for companies or whatever, you know? Yeah. So after that, so when you said that you, you formed the studio, was it like audio recording studios? Or did yeah, you go into video? that was it. That was it. We we're just making a lot of records, a ton of records. We're getting them. We were sourcing music and albums out from L.A. and just had a real a huge lockdown on a, a certain type of hard rock in New England. Like people would just come all the time. And it was it was pretty it was going pretty good for, you know, five, six, seven years or something like that. And then it just was it was time to kind of jump out you know yeah so a lot of uh, your so you said you were busy kind of right away did you already form a bunch of connections just from being in the music scene you had people that wanted to record and you had the facility ready to go i mean that's that's pretty amazing that you jumped off that quickly with you know being booked all the time 
Well, I was painting houses before my band and I was like, I'm not doing that shit. And then we needed demos made. So I made them anyway. So everybody's like, hey, I want to make mine just like everybody's story that starts off producing. It's the same for everyone. You know, a four track, an eight track, a 16 track, a computer. Um, that's exactly what it was. It was just growing a business, really. And and now, you know, we have in the neighborhood of 10 engineers working in these studios, which is pretty cool. But it's I mean, I had to fight to get in this room I'm sitting in right now. So, <laughs> I mean, you know, that's kind of the truth. But whatever. Who cares? It's cool. You know, we have the stuff in the rooms now to you know, facilitate these things we want to do. It's all fun now, you know? Mm -hmm. Had you had any experience, sorry to cut you off, Corey, um, doing any sort of recording after being in a band or did you just kind of jump right in and, and learn as you went? Like, did you have any experience actually engineering? Did you, did you do any of that? Or did oh you yeah. Okay. When I was like 17 years old, I just became a studio rat. So by the time I was like 25, I, that's almost all I did. And, but, and, and, Year, uh, you know, the next couple of years after that, when I was doing things, um, you know, with Howard Benson, like th the first record he ever gave me to work on sold six million records. You know what I mean? Like, it, this is kind of like, oh, OK, I'll, I'll do this now. But I had made a, a, a hundred records before that that weren't anywhere near that kind of level. But it, it allowed me to kind of, you know, sharpen the sword or whatever you want to say to just be ready to like kick what, ass. What was the most like eye-opening thing working at that level for the first time that you noticed the difference between doing it, you know, in a local sense and then on the, that scale? Um, I think it was just songwriting and attention to detail. Like even when you think you shed your tunes and you do this and that, when a guy comes in and he, He's wearing fucking sweatpants and he's casually writing on a, in a, in a line notebook notes about your song and your song's over. And he's like, all right, you got to do this. And he gives you like 12 notes and you're like, what the fuck are we even here for? Like, you just change everything. <laughs> then you play it and you're like, oh, my God, holy shit. You know, it's like, oh, we're fucking idiots. This guy just like, psh, psh. that's so how it went. Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about like his uh, his production style and, and, you know, how he approached those songs? Yeah, though, they were really like dirty. I don't know if you're familiar with like not that we were like old chili peppers, but the way the chilies are were so different in the beginning or, you know, for us, like a band like Power Man 5000 before they moved to Mars, like there was like this funky, dirty hip hop, like swingy thing that we had. And he turned them into songs that like your aunt would be like, oh, I fucking love that one. <laughs> and, <laughs> which which kind, you know, uh, kind of sucks. But we made a record. We made the whole demo with Chris Renner, the drummer from Nine Inch Nails before that. And he erased all of that feel. And everybody was like, oh, no, this is bad. But and Howard left that shit there, except he polished it with he, he like kind of took your mind off it was like standard progressions or the way things would turn around or the way uh production would drop or just the repetitiveness of a chorus or he just knows what he's doing on such a high level just like anyone like a bridge builder would know looking at a bridge and be like no that one needs you know anything like that monster yeah, that's incredible. I'm always amazed by producers when they just like know what to do. <laughs> that's, I totally do not have that talent. So it's incredible to hear the flip side of it. I can tell you yeah. what you should do if you're a producer. Okay. Be okay. frustrated 
and continue to be frustrated until you want to fucking stab yourself in the eye and then call Corey in a, in a fucking cold sweat and then frustrate him and then he'll say like, I'll look it up and then and this, you go and yeah, this figure is all it out. Over you, you trying to figure out how to like start the cursor, you know, with, oh, yeah. a, with a pre-roll. Oh, it's never something hard. So like, listen, like I could fucking sync up my fucking da to my other, you know, preamp, like all these fucking, uh, you know, crazy not, obtuse things. You're talking about your interface instead of your da again. Yeah. Whatever. I can make all that's these keyboards. Thing, by the way. That's not producing, by the way. That's not producing. I can make all these, I can make all these keyboards work together. Okay. But I can't figure out how to, like when I Ben's stop, like, I plug the keyboard in. Is this producing? I don't know. And get it back to the beginning. <laughs> like by pressing stop, it starts back at zero. Like I started it. It starts no, at three. No, no. Ben's style of producing is yelling and screaming and then walking out of the room and letting you produce yourself because that's what happened to me. It's like, oh shit, I got a phone call. And then no, I just <laughs> stop. I just stop. No, you with you, I eventually just right? stop playing. I just stop and start it again. I don't even talk to you. I just, I just stop, start, stop, start. You're like, what did I do wrong? Stop, start, stop, start. Are you serious? Stop, start. He doesn't deserve you guys. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Accurate. But at least he has a lot of keyboards and guitars. So yeah, yeah. a real producer doesn't plug in keyboards. <laughs> oh my uh, god. Well, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's such a unique experience to have that level of, um, talent and expertise, you know, to be introduced to that from mm. like, you know, I think a lot of people maybe work their way up to that. So it's kind of cool that you get to see right at that high, highest level right away. Do you think that shaped, you know, your perspective on music and the way you, you wrote moving forward? Oh yeah. yeah. I'm not bullshitting you at the end of three months of making that record when I left there. I, somebody, I was reprogrammed. I was I was OS 13. I literally left there like, oh, well, Howard does this. Howard does this. Bobby does this. But and I know how every little thing they did was laid out and graphed and what would happen. I knew beforehand, but then I saw how to like systemize it, and make it fast. You know, it's everybody does the same thing. It's just the high level dudes do it automatically quicker you know if i remember correctly at some point uh either talking with you or, or in some discussion you mentioned that you you were kind of early on with the digital editing and pro tools like kind of picking up that and, and becoming almost invaluable because a lot not a lot of people were doing it is that correct yeah i started when it was when the max looked really weird with, with <laughs> funny fonts and shit <laughs> i don't even, apple 2c no i don't know what the fuck it was it was a long time ago though wait Did you play oregon trail on it no dig dug no i it was a long time i got my first pro tools rig with a partner of mine uh we opened the studio and that was incredible but it was like maybe 99 or 2000. So it was going for years before that, but I, I had worked on it before that, but that was the first time we got it. And that was very eye opening. And that, you know, that excitement, it basically, I mean, we just got a facility and started making records. That's amazing. So what were you doing? Like, what were you using before that? I'm just curious. ADATs. ADATs. You guys know what ADATs are? The terrible. The guys, and I've, I've heard um, it, but I've, no, man. They're call them. It's like they like, say football versus soccer. It's a VHS tape, bro. Yeah, it was terrible. It was terrible. A VHS tape, and you could actually get two VHS tapes and double how much yeah. you can get. Fucking, it's crazy, dude. What you could do with them, and then if you wanted them smaller, you get rid of the A and just put it on a DAT. The thing about those that was so awesome, though, when you got to the pinnacle, when everything mattered the most and you cared the most and it sounded the best, 
the shit would break. <laughs> Everything would just snap and disappear and numbers would be corrupt and you'd start over. Yeah. Oh, my yeah. gosh. Yeah. yeah, we're so spoiled by digital technology now and everything's so user-friendly. I can't even imagine. <laughs> you would think Simpty would be simple, but Simpty is not simple, nor is it fun. No, those were bad days. <laughs> so is, is the, the room that you're in now a part of the studio, the same one that you're talking about from the beginning? So it's been in the same place since the beginning? Yeah, kind of. There's another studio behind me, which was the first room that kind of sparked it all. And then even in, in Saturday, in fact, we opened our second location public and, um, you know, the mayor and like the state reps came down and ribbon coveting. You know, it, was, it was kind of felt a little weird for a recording story, but it was also <laughs> awesome because, you know, we're we're actually doing it. You know, we're making these studios accessible. It's it's mostly hip hop, but you can do anything you want. Some of these studios have huge live rooms and whatever, but it's we just wow. we just have hip hop kids in here making records all day long. And there's other things going on, but that's just kind of what keeps cranking. Wow, that's incredible. Now, mm -hmm. you you have uh, you've mentioned you've kind of moved out of the audio realm and more towards the video. When did uh, when you did that transition, like how did you feel about kind of handing off something that you were building up? You know, you brought in partners, you mentioned, like, how, how did that process look? When Sean, when my partner, Sean came in, I literally looked at him like this kid's so much better than me. I I'm done. Like I, I feel awesome not doing it. I really, that's exactly what I felt. And now like I'll walk by the room when he's working and I'll stick my head and I'll be like, yeah, forget it. And I just walk away because it's, it's great. So really, I mean, I really feel that, but I've worked with like legendary producers, like really big names, and they'll always have a, a dainty, very nice little person beside them working. And they'll always give the eye of like, is this top end cool? Because I can't hear shit anymore. <laughs> like, that's a real thing, you know? So I, I was kind of like, yeah, do I want to do that or whatever? You know, I didn't really care, but I had the opportunity to like film amazing bands like Alice in Chains and just all kinds of these other bands. And I was like, fuck, this is way cooler. And I only have to do this for like an hour or two. It's way cooler. <laughs> and I'm done, yeah. Well, you clearly have a talent for it. And I'm, I'm wondering on the video side, is most of it in the editing or is it in getting, you know, kind of like with audio, you want to have good source material. Is it, does it start with good source material in the video camera or is the art really in the editing? Both. If you can, if your stuff, if you're not filming stuff, that's amazing, then you're, you're so fucked no matter how many tricks you have. But like last week we were in Arizona filming this Daughtry video and right in the camera, we had we had two cameras going and I could see everything that was going on through my monitors. And I was just like, this is unbelievable. And I know that they're going to think it's unbelievable, like talking about my crew, because they, they can only see what each one's doing. We had five guys there. It was it was unreal. And by the time I got on the plane, I got to see all the footage. I was just like, fuck, yes. So there would it would it was so easy at that point to edit because the job was done. You know, and it wasn't a tough video; it just had to be good. You know, so but, is it like is it like mixing where they say like you get the good sound to tape, and then like it mixes itself? Like you just like you know you point it, it looks fucking awesome all the time. Then it's not like well, I gotta cut the camera too. It's like every fucking camera looks awesome through the whole fucking thing. So just yeah. make it happen, Picasso. Now, when yeah. you're shooting Daughtry, I know this is a pre-recorded one, but I'm just gonna when I'm because I'm working with Ben. I the the most fun challenge with him is where do I cut to the point where he's playing the 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 bridge over the verse, and I need to figure out if his hands line up 
incorrectly with the uh the next edit here ah uh, well you know what <laughs> daughtry is a he's a fucking badass who didn't he'd never screw up like that right you know, he yeah. really didn't i i'm not even trying to kiss his ass like going through all the takes in my mind i would he, hope not yeah hold it, on yeah. can i tell you but there, hold on, there's there's two there's two sides to that so one i always write stuff and i compose it in the studio and i forget it and I really don't give a shit about it once it's to tape. And I'm like, I did it. And like the other night, and Siobhan can attest to this, I actually lost a bunch of piano stuff. And I was like, holy shit. And it took Susanna, the 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 cellist from Star Set, to be like, Ben, uh, where do those bars go? I'm like, wait, where did the whole middle go? And where did that arpeggio go? So I literally stayed up all night listening to my own piano parts and fucking like turning myself until I played it perfectly, but that's because I actually need to send it back to Siobhan, Susanna, and Marco versus if it's for you, I'm just like, Corey could fucking edit it. I don't need to learn that shit. <laughs> yeah, but there's also he, ben, knows, ben knows when his stuff's going out to high level people and he won't, he also knows that Corey won't sell him out. So the shit he sends that's out. To I trust Corey. I do trust Corey. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. That's why I say get a safety shot. Get one of just my face. Get me looking at tense and, and rhythm. And even if it's not in rhythm, get <laughs> just, just get a close up of like a shadow. <laughs> I'm just like Ben, headbang in time, and we do that for twenty minutes. <laughs> it's not really that possible. He doesn't care. He doesn't care. He doesn't care. Oh my god. I do well, now because I'm editing my own self. That's what Jim did to fuck with me. Is it now with the neurotic guitars? He's like, Well, you're gonna edit it. So why don't you try just getting it the first time so like, now when i'm recording i'm like oh well why don't we do this okay, let me get the sound bite again you can just see him like the grasshoppers learning that he's a fucking brat <laughs> yeah. oh my god yeah point being source material get it right <laughs> well not to backtrack but before we get too deep into the video side you'd mentioned that you worked with some other legendary producers and i'm curious to hear about that because i'm fascinated by production can you talk about some of the other people that you worked with on the audio side that were some great producers yeah um uh, well, Benny mentioned Nuno, who for for Ben, that's the go. And I'm not even shitting like Nuno's my go too. I mean, he's the fucking greatest. <laughs> well, he lives in the same town. You know, I live in the town that he grew up in and whatever. Uh, but, you know, that that's it's his birthday today, by the way, just so you guys oh, know when we no, record. No, no. It's, it's actually his birthday today later because that, isn't, isn't that weird? Isn't that weird that today like a synchronicity yeah. is that it's Nuno's birthday that we'd all be together? Well, actually, to by the time anyone watches this, his yeah. birthday was no, but I'm saying that ago. when we're recording yeah. this, us actually serendipitously, like we can all send our live? collective energy. Yeah. Yeah. So um, to his dream catcher, I want to try to go from there. We I, I said we had worked with Chris Renner, which. That didn't really work out. But one thing that was amazing from that, um, I made a record that that failed demo to no fault of Joe Barisi's, who is the fucking legend. If you know who he is, he's like a Sound City dude from back in the day. He's just he's incredible. He's one of the top dudes. Queen of the Stone Age, he, all, like Fu Manchu records. He, he makes like two records. He's incredible. And I got to spend some time with him and really watch what a dude who is not afraid to plug in like 12 amps and you know make three of them sound so broken you would never plug it in and it just turns into this thing it's like what the fuck it's huge and that that was just incredible i've worked with bobby brooks who's worked with uh, rick james and michael jackson and um you know I've, I've cut a couple of records with him and just he's an incredible engineer just a, a, f a fucking legend, an absolute legend. I've had the honor of like 
fixing mixes, getting getting Pro Tools things ready for mixes from guys like Mott Lang and uh, Tom Lord Algae and shit like that. You know, it I I've done it so long that there's really nothing I haven't done. I've I quantized a Chris a 15 minute Christmas song for the band Chicago. I'm not a drummer for me to be putting a click track to this shit. It was really mind boggling. It really was. And it's just crazy. And then, uh, you know, and then uh, I've got to watch some incredible dudes like Dave Fortman work with Godsmack and stuff. Um, that's I've seen it all. I've seen and I've and I've seen some real legend guys work, too, but not with them, but in the room. So you know, my studio life is pretty deep, but I don't really do it that much anymore, but I still end up in that in it, in the way that like, you know, I will capture all the content for like Godsmack making an entire record, like all day, every day for months or whatever, that kind of stuff. So I'm still in the studio, but I'm holding the camera or directing the camera or telling the guys how to do it or whatever. And that's kind of where I'm at now. It's, it's more fun. I I feel like it's, it's a bigger thing. It's not, you know, for me, making a record's cool, but it's almost one dimensional. And I don't want to say it is like that, but for me now, every, put it this way, video sucks without audio, but video is more fun with the right audio. And I always tend to have the right audio, you know? So wait, you'd rather direct Survivor than be on Survivor and win a million dollars. You'd rather laugh at them as most of them are getting burnt and falling off cliffs and shit. And that's just, it's kind of like, that's how I feel. Like if you watch Godsmack in the studio, because like watching Sully tell a guy like Shannon Larkin, I'm sure like, hey, that's a drum fill that you should do. And it's just like, I don't, this is not my monkeys. This is not my circus. All I need to do is figure it out in 16.9, cut it up in 4K, shoot that shit, point the camera in that direction, and fuck it. It's Dave Fortman's problem. Let him fucking figure out the drum sound. Let him fucking figure out the philosophy. I'm just going to point my camera. And there's got to be a relief in that because it's like, you get to go home. It's like being the DJ at a club. Like all those fucking bartenders are cleaning up all that puke and all that dirty fucking shit. You're packing up your laptop, going home, taking your money. Doesn't matter what tips you made. You're fucking out. Yeah, I love it. Our buddy, our buddy Kamal works for uh, Boston <laughs> and Godsmack and a bunch of other bands. And he was saying a couple weeks ago, he's like, man, I feel really bad. I travel with the band and I'd walk in while the crew's setting up this giant thing and i'm just holding my camera and standing around like next to the band and it's and it's just really awkward i'm like dude don't feel bad about that that's your job like what are you gonna do pick up a wrench and fucking you know <laughs> like it's cool it's totally cool but ben is right at the end of the day and my end of the day is way before theirs we turn off the cameras and we go home and those guys got to do all kinds of bullshit so yeah it's it's cool yeah. Is there any sort of creative insight you took from audio producers that you've brought into your realm of video? Like, you know, any sort of piece of advice that stuck with you or something you observed from producers that you that, that helped you kind of take into your your video production world? That oh, makes yeah. I, every single thing that I record or that I film, I remember if there's like two or three takes or whatever, I remember which ones are good or which parts are the ones that I need to know have to be in the sequence or whatever like i never forget like when it happens i have a certain thought and i can watch it like three months later and i have the same thought and a lot of times i'll even say the same words that i'll hear myself in the background of the recording like oh, oh you can't go do that and i'll i'll say it and then i'll hear myself say it like i have the same exact thought every time so 
it's 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 like speed reading or, or what do you call it? The photographic memory for the stuff. But it's like, believe me, the photographic memory doesn't go much beyond that. But that's how I, I can remember things. And it's the same. It's the same. Like take two is really great. Like it's the same stuff, you know? Yeah, oh, that's amazing. It's a fear. I have actually, I have a question because you you alluded to something, and and like I feel like I was very lucky, and I've said this on other podcasts where I came in at the end of analog and the beginning of digital. So like I went to Longview Farm Studios, recorded my first record where we were on analog, but we actually had to hire in a separate Pro Tools facility to come in and dump it to digital like that. Day. Like it's from a very fucking different time. Mm-hmm. And the producer I worked with, Scott Riebling, who's an amazing producer, um, he he. You used to come in with like five amps. He was always like, you need three amps. One for like the high end, one for the mids, and like one's for the lows. So like he would like go and use like a little 10 inch matchless for just the mids. Like like he had like a, a, one of those triple box things. And we did all kinds of shit. We turned the tape upside down and all these things, which you could now digitally manipulate. I'm going to tell you right now, I got a whole, you know this, we do the neuronic guitars. I have a whole wall of amps. If you were like, hey, let's get one of those three box splitters and go into three amps i'd first off say no and i'd <laughs> no. say that and, and, and then you'd be like but but it's gonna sound good we can feed it into them separately and then i would say but i have a kemper and then you'd be like but it doesn't sound as good as an amp and i'd say you're wrong yeah do you feel like that a lot of people are now bypassing what you used to do that was like turning over the tape and like you know doing all these things and like the is it the same or is it really not my engineers, bless their little hearts, have no fucking clue about that stuff, Ben. No <laughs> clue. No clue. Like, turn over a tape. Like, no clue. And some of them, like, go to, like, you know, graduate from, like, UMass Lowell Audio, like, great programs and stuff. But those days are so far gone that they they wouldn't understand. Like, to be honest with you, for, for some of them, and we're talking people with amazing ears, they can't mic a drum set but what they can do with the vocal would blow your fucking mind you know but this is a different world they focus different it's different talents. skills yeah. it's totally different skills to be able like it's funny because Corey, i i, I love cory for this because now i felt like a fucking wizard because i just i'm afraid of his loss no 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 well, well, well no 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 because for overheads i used to do like xy patterns all these different patterns and now i put them wherever the fuck i want and i go and i measure Directly from the center of the snare. So finally, the sure drums I get are in phase. It's amazing. They're all in phase. But I, look, I didn't. I didn't know what phase meant until Corey's like, "It's that wah sound." Like, what? What do you mean? Like, dude, you can't hear that. Like, it's so. I finally, like, I, I've gone to other people's studios who have amazing setups, and they're like, "How come your drums sound so good? It sounds like shit." And they'll do these X Y patterns, and like the snare drum is a foot and a half further from one because of the way this fucking drummer's playing or something you can do all those things you just have to listen and then correct it if it's not right (laughs) no i know but like the way you taught me now like i'm an i'm an idiot but teach a man to fish i'm eating fish every single time so when i send up drums you're like all my drums are in phase now you may i may not turn on the right room mic and i may forget to give you a a whole fucking rack tom but i will always make sure my overheads are in phase that's actually the first rule of you don't suck. If you can hear that something's in or out of phase, then you're on the right track. If you don't know what that means, then go fuck yourself. <laughs> maybe, maybe they're just not phased. Yeah. Unfazed by phase. Yeah. Unfazed by phase. Wow. A lot of great advice in here. <laughs> do you even know what fa- are you? Do you know what phase means, Siobhan? Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Because uh, it's like, like binaural. Yeah. 
I, well, I've only learned because I had to learn how to record myself and my husband's good, really good with engineering. And yeah, he'll be like, oh no, we got to place the mics and make sure they're in phase so they don't cancel. You, you mean know, like when we do a hundred thousand violins in a row and it's like, they start sounding weird and you're like, why? You're like, oh, that's because I wasn't standing equidistant from that one to that one. No, yeah. it's, it's, we did probably, that a lot. It's probably because you're so good Me. that you're replicating yourself too tight and it's really she, doing weird shit. She does get overtones, dude. It's fucking ridiculous. She's so consistent. Like, first off, every take is a take. It's just a matter of, did I get it? I don't know. And then it's that. like, and, and then the other thing is you'll say, like, get, get a harmony. Like, give me a third. Give me a fifth. And she'll know it's a natural. It's a sharp. It's like a double flat. Like, whatever. Just off the top of her head in real time. And it's never, ever about the technique. And it's just so amazing because, like, Siobhan is a huge human violin machine she's the violympic leader <laughs> well thank you for the compliments i appreciate it <laughs> no but it's great i mean i'm definitely the dumb dumb of the audio people here i i know the least in the group but it's it's very cool to hear about it so. it's so nice to be better at you than something <laughs> for once Corey's like arguable i've heard her tracks are very clean oh my yeah. god they improve every time so that's all you yeah, can ask for right? yeah well, you can thank Brock for a lot of that because he listens. He's like, I can't believe you're going to send this in. And then I have to do it all over again. <laughs> well, you should just tell him that he needs to be fucking engineering it from the start and be a fucking man. And yeah. then if he wants to support you, that he would support you by being an engineer because clearly that's his skill. And your skill is being awesome at violin. And if he was awesome at violin, he'd be playing violin and then you would be recording him. But he's not. So he should be doing that for you. Right, Brock? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. No, but I mean, coming back to Jim, I, 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 I totally relate. I mean, speaking of that, I totally relate to not wanting to deal with that stuff. So, yeah, I mean, the audio engineering brings pain to me and it just seems like very, very difficult. And I just don't want to be bothered with it. I'd rather just do my creative thing with violin. <laughs> so anyway, we can jump back to you and uh, continue on with your story. <laughs> let's get let's get back into to video and, you know, it's how you branched off into that. So you were you were over it with audio stuff for the most part. You still have your studio running. What were some of the you, you kind of alluded to it earlier, but some of your early projects um, on the video side, you know, what was kind of your first dabbling in, you know, filming, video, editing, all of that? Um, I yeah, I did actually say earlier I filmed uh, Allison. I was just a cameraman for one of my friends who was directing, but I, it was Allison Chains in. Um, it was like their first concert back with their new singer. Who is fucking so incredible. And it William just blew Duvall's my mind. The man. Yeah, William Duvall is the man. But it just blew my mind. I, I was I happened to be like the center stage cam just filming every. I, but I was like, you know what? I'm not doing this shit like audio stuff anymore. And then right at that same time, I started doing stuff for Sully Erna on his um, his solo tour i started doing all these videos that he would play on the screens behind him when you know on the on the on that that tour and that was a lot of work and you know we made a little film for the beginning of it that explained you know music and emotions and all these kind of things and then that kind of eventually worked into work and like i edited and did i was a producer on a thousand horsepower music video and then from there things just started kind of like jumping for some reason i got lumped into a bunch of heavy metal video uh bands and i was just like what the fuck am i like <laughs> i i started making like all these devil videos and all this heavy shit and i'm like you killed me in a video that was fun yeah but that wasn't really heavy that was just like no that was more like emo pretend heavy yeah yeah. that yeah. was like like the like girls like this is so heavy this is the heaviest thing on my mix and all the dudes are like 
this is not fucking heavy. It's funny you bring that up. Like, how did we meet? I, well, that was the first time I think we really hung out, like extended. Do you but remember Benny, what you called me? No, nah, it doesn't Do you remember matter. what you asked me? <laughs> now you remember I asked this question earlier and all of a sudden you're remembering Ben? You even remember what he said to no, you? No, I'm saying I remember what he said to me when he called me about that video. Oh, okay. He called me up. He goes, I'm going to be shooting a video. I need a hot chick for like nothing. And um, I need like a stupid looking kind of. It's like, oh, no, I think I said I need a dude with nipple rings, Ben. I think that's what I said. Oh, well, no. listen, if you go online, there's like 10,000 comments and 9,800 of them are about my nipple rings in that video. Uh, so from ashes to new. You know what? The irony is that video actually does have a few views on it. What is it? Millions, like, tens of millions. Yeah. So, you know, that worked out. But. And I did some. Oh, my you killed God. me going the wrong way down the road. I had that's to have been because, in Australia. That's because I stole stock the footage. Video. Yeah, from a European <laughs> video site. <laughs> oh, I'm like, dude, he kills that. me. And then I'm like, wait a minute. I'm watching it a bunch of times. I'm like, that's the wrong side of the road. It was European stock. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, oh, and, my God. Uh, yeah, but, the, but I always have. Ben will tell you, I think Ben's perplexed at why certain people call me to do certain things out of the blue. Like, um, <laughs> it's a little, he's like, how do you, how do they know you for that? Like, but I, I just got done doing a reality show for Godsmack, which was months and months of filming. Like it's a real reality show. So that was pretty cool. Um, I got a random call one day to shoot a video for Queensryche. Just weird, random shit just is always happening. Uh, but I don't really question it. Yeah. In ter- so reality show uh, is obviously like a whole different level of production than like doing a music video. Uh, do you have a preference or do you like to mix it up? I could tell you that was probably getting the pilot done for that in the last like Ben will tell you, I like I couldn't I couldn't even answer the phone. The last four weeks of the edit with Sully was in, like the hardest shit I've ever done. But the end result, I mean, like really almost depressing and, and it just gets so low that work is so hard. And, some, and if there's a hiccup, it makes work even harder. But at the end of it, we were both just like, shit, this is fucking awesome. So it was definitely worth it. And honestly, three days after a month of terrible work, you're like, hey, this was cool. So, you know, it doesn't matter. Honestly, the hard work doesn't really matter in the long run. But yeah, to answer your question, I actually love that because I love working with my crew and I get to use more camera guys and audio dudes. And like, these are all my friends and we get to travel around and all that shit. So yeah, I do like that. Yeah. One of my favorite things about video is that like feeling after you finish that like you've created something and it's done and it's out there and you actually have that sense of like accomplishment, which uh, you obviously have for music, but I feel like video, you know, it hits, it hits more levels. Like you mentioned, it's a little more little more depth to it when you finish a project are you like boom done onto the next or to like do you do you kind of does that stick with you at all i gotta make sure i'm not onto the next before i'm done yeah. because <laughs> i'm doing a lot i yeah. i'm man i'm managing people but i'm and and i also have these clients that want to know i'm working on them as well you know so I have to jump around a lot. And, and and if something strikes me, like if I feel like I have a project with Ben and I tell, tell him a lot, like I, I'm like losing sleep. I want to see this thing finished, you know? So yeah, I think about it all the time. And if I get like, let's say six hours and I'm feeling something, I jump on that. And once that six hours is over, it might not be another six hours for like two weeks or something. You know what I mean? So that's kind of, it's, it's, 
it's tough, but that's how I got to manage the creativity because I'm not going to put time into something if I'm not feeling it. That's a good point because that's, I think, something that can kind of apply to almost every aspect of what we're talking about. And most of the people we talk to uh, on the show, which is creatives, is like kind of jumping on that that inspiration and the motivation for something that if you don't have it, it can be a struggle to like, you know, just put an hour into something and, and then you sit in there and you haven't, you know, it's just, you're not feeling it. Um, so do you find that having the multiple projects and being able to jump around helps with that? It depends. My partners say, oh, is Jim time blocking? That means like I'm not answering the phone. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not like, yeah, I'm time blocking because if I if I don't utilize this time and it's gone, I'm like, oh, shit, because I know it's precious. I really do. It's like it's weird. I I have to do this all day, every day, or I can't keep up with the work I have. So I will say one thing I've appreciated working with Jim is that, you know, when we talk about stuff, he'll be like, dude. Do you know that you just spent three hours talking about this thing that's annoying you? Like, do you know how much time we could have been just doing shit and blah, 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 blah. And it's like he puts a lot of things in perspective as far as like, you know, like I uh, have obsessive thoughts and I don't take Lamictal. So I'm like, hey, man, that's that's great. And But Jim does have a very Zen thing where it's just like, you know, it's that whole like I you can only appropriate so many fucks to things like, do you really have time to worry about that? Like, are you actually on fire? You're not cool. Focus. And it's Every minute very matters. Cool. Every minute it matters. Does. I'm telling you. And I, when he does shit like that, I'm like, I'm counting those minutes. I'm like, <laughs> it, it's, it's twice the minutes now. It's twice the amount of time because now I have to get him back on track. And that takes twice the amount of time. It's like if you miss the um, if you miss the exit going on uh, the Mass Pike East because for oh some dumb God. reason G- you went west, you're fucked. 20 That's minutes like each way. <laughs> That's like the seventh level of hell in Dante's Inferno is literally missing the exit on 90 and then watching your GPS just go like that way. And then it's just the <laughs> same line back that too. way. And it's then horrible. there's just one like div- like divide where there's like a cop thing where you could technically do a U-turn in the middle of a highway. You're like, I'll risk it. <laughs> Benny's actually my muse. I'd rather not hear him complain about something when I know he's good for something at a certain point. I, he's like one of those. Whoa, he's one of those little wind up toys. You just got to point him at something and let it fucking go. And then he's he's like, he'll go get it. And that's it. And otherwise, you could sit on the phone and talk about it for hours. So you got to know how to use Ben. He's like a laser beam. Well, you try. He's he's trying to be like, can you write this out? I'm like, no. And then like he he's also realized, like, instead of trying to organize you, I'm just going to be like, here's a fucking microphone. Benny X. And I'm like, oh, well, let me tell you about that, Jim. Yeah. Well, Ben also likes to say he's absolutely not doing something. And I'm sure you two know about that. My grandfather taught that to me. That's fucked up. But let's we can move on. We can move on. (laughs) (laughs) My grandfather one year was like, I'm not going to guard it anymore. My mom was like, that's silly. And he didn't guard it ever again. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. That's true. He got older. He's like, I'm too old to garden. Both you are. Oh my gosh! No, but I was. But everything. That's the name of my autobiography. I'm too old to garden. (laughs) Well, you're clearly overall holistically a very good producer. You know how to harness the strengths of your subjects, and that's what you just said about Ben. Yeah, it's completely true. You have to understand how to utilize your time, how to get people to produce for you what they're best at, and that's that's a hard thing. I can imagine. Um, how, y- y- do you have any stories of working with other people where you've had, and, and maybe this comes down to the difference between producing and directing, but 
you know, have there been any experiences you've had where you've had to really guide people or deal with difficult personalities or somebody that's not so great in film or in front of a camera? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure all the time, every time, <laughs> no, very, very few actually know what they really want. I don't want to keep bringing up Sully, but Sully knows 100 percent exactly everything that he wants and where it's going to go and how it's going to go down. And then you get another person that might say, uh, oh, I, I trust you, this and that. And then you get to be like, why the fuck you got the camera on me that way? It's like, where the hell's the trust? But but it's you, what it really comes down to is you need if you don't know the person, you need to assess their personality immediately and then compartmentalize it to like, are they a Toyota, a Rolls Royce or a Lamborghini or however you do it in your mind? Well, I actually, I would like you to take that that metaphor because we have a very close friend of the show. That's a mutual friend um, that is it's he's very close to my spirit animal. But you watched him for over a month with your whole crew. Um, Shannon Larkin. Can you tell us about your experiences with him? Because I find him a very interesting character and I love him. I love him very much. What's not to love? <laughs> he's 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 a fucking man. He's actually he's the drummer in the first band I ever saw in my life in a club. Rathchild. It was oh, incredible. Nice. Blew my fucking mind. Um and I immediately went to the mall and stole his tape the next day. And I was like <laughs> 15 or something like that. And, and, and on that record, that's a badass story, dude. You went and stole his tape. Good I had to. I didn't have any money. Um, I, but at that gig, ironically, they played Pink Floyd's time. And like whatever it was, 20 years later, 25, whatever it was, I was in the studio while they, Godsmack was covering Pink Floyd's time. And I'm filming the guy and I'm just like, this is fucking wild, dude. This is really wild. So, well, Shannon's the best. And I, I don't know, you know, as far as what what footage you'll see in the future of that show. But, oh, man, I wish you could see it. It's so funny. And Shannon is the reason it's funny. He's fucking hilarious. I can only imagine. Yeah, we've had him on the podcast a few times. And even our, our few interactions have been pretty hilarious. <laughs> he is what a rock star is. He is. He's just a rock star. Well, he but he's also well, the thing is, that's great about him is that he's just like, yeah, Betty, I started playing at 13 and then I just played. And like, that's all he's done. Like, he, he's never had to live. I don't want to say in the real world because he was like, he was lugging his drums from West Virginia and begging his parents to come to gigs at like 12. And then from then on, they're just like, everyone's like, he's the best ever. And then he just played. Like, I played in 38, you know, records in 36 years. And you're like, holy shit, I'm only 38 years old. Like that motherfucker. And, and I, one of the coolest things ever was having a conversation with Shannon. And I was like, dude, you kind of like, cause I went and saw Rathchild on YouTube because Paul Lorenzo, our drummer was like, oh yeah, dude, you, you gotta watch Rathchild. Like not like anything wrong with Godsmack, but like, bro, you have to see him in Rathchild. Like, cause I was just like, well, what's, cause I know Godsmack does the drum solo thing, but I'm like, what's so special about this guy? And then you go and watch Rathchild. You're like, Oh my God. And immediately I thought to myself, this sounds like Vinnie Paul. He's doing some Vinnie Paul shit. And I called him and I was like, dude, you kind of remind me of a young Vinnie Paul. And he set me straight so fast because he was first off. He goes, Vincent was in a band called Pantera when they were a Van Halen cover band. And let me tell you, he didn't know Ace of Spades by Motorhead. He goes, I, I started playing some double bass and he saw it. He goes, what is it? I go, that's Motorhead. 
And he goes, and then I, all those Morgan Rose, all those, all the holding up the sticking. I did that. And then it turned out he's the second Sabian guy ever. He literally, other than Phil Collin, they're Collins. Phil Collins. No, Collins. I always get Def Leppard and Phil and Genesis mixed up. It's fucked up. It's a weird crossing of the streams. But other than Phil Collins, I, it's weird because I actually, this is how we had a synchronicity. I sent him a backstage pass from Genesis. I said, you should astrally project yourself to backstage. And it was like the right tour. And he goes, do you know how I actually started playing Sabian? He goes, it started, the first advertisement was Phil Collins is inviting you to play Sabian. And I had actually sent him a backstage pass from that tour from when the fucking Zildjian brothers or sisters ran to fucking Canada and made the fucking Canadian oh Zildjians. God. That's fucking Sabian. And he explained all of this shit to me. Did, wait, did, did he tell the story on this show for fuck's sake? I hope he did. No. All right, good. <laughs> he told me, though, as he was like fucking getting the pH balance of his fucking 55,000 gallon koi pond because he was lamenting over the fact that he had lost one of his fish. And I felt really bad for him. But fortunately, one of his turtles had a baby and it was awesome. So, again, with every door that closes, a window opens. Yeah. What a, what a lovely way to end this episode with... <laughs> You have great timing for your episode, Randy. Tony Rumbola. (laughs) Oh, no. So, so, (laughs) Jim, thank you for taking the time to talk to us in this part one. We can jump in a little deeper in part two. Um, Jim, where can we find you about? uh, Is it red13studios.com? Yeah. 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 Uh, And anything else that that you want to let people know about? Um, Man, just look for that Daughtry video. It should be out around the time that this drops, I think. We'll, we'll link below if it's out. Cool. Awesome. So check out 2020-d.com. Like and subscribe to the podcast, to all those fun things, and we'll see you in part two. Thank you, as always, for checking out this episode of 2020. Please visit 2020-d.com. Like and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on future episodes. This week's throwback clip is from episode number 81, featuring Richard Shaw of Cradle of Filth. Check it out. Uh, well, it was Father's Day, and I posted on my Instagram, like, a lovely Father's Day picture for my dad, who's an excellent granddad to, to my son, and all this kind of stuff. That was lovely. And then right at the end of the day, my son decided to give me an extra special Father's Day treat, <laughs> which he had not done in a very long time, where he had what we affe- affectionately called a punami. Or a catastrophe. It's not even specific to children. Like we can all have a catastrophe from time to time. You know, what I mean, especially on tour. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Refer so back to our first episodes with back you. Back to the first episode. But 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 basically, what happened? I, I put it up online, going, "This would be quite funny." And I literally woke up to a hundred less followers. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music 
or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday.